So the theme of my talk is very much in keeping with the last 30 seconds. The theme of my talk is not knowing, but keep going. <laughs> and I want to talk about these two themes. And so the talk very easily divides into two parts, not knowing and keep going. <laughs> and in the, in the first part, I want to talk about some of the uh, qualities of not knowing and the importance of not knowing, and especially how do we practice not knowing. And then in the uh, second part, I want to talk about what I think is a, a kind of a balance for the practice of not knowing, which I call keep going. And it also is an area we, where we can talk about the kind of um, dangers and possible traps of the practice of not knowing. So I want to begin with a few stories. The first one takes place in 1931. The Indian independence movement with Gandhi is in a state of confusion. People don't know what to do. There have been ups and downs. Gandhi doesn't know what to do. Some people want to go back to old strategies, old ways of doing things. Gandhi knows that it's, these are not good strategies or thinks that these are not good strategies. He decides to go into retreat. Not knowing at all what the next step is, he goes into retreat for six weeks and might have stayed longer. He sits for six weeks. He has very little contact with others. He's in silence. After six weeks, something comes to him and he knows that the next step is to carry out what became the Salt March, which was the march of thousands of Indians to the coast to defy the British prohibition against anyone but the British making salt, if you can imagine that. Salt being necessary for preservation of food in a warm climate. And so out of that silence and out of that not knowing came what really for many, in many people's minds, was the pivotal action that led to Indian independence. Many people think after that action, things were never the same. A second story. Uh, it's told by Joanna Macy. She, had, she was living in the Washington, D.C. area and had been doing uh, anti-nuclear work. She came to a small town called uh, North Anna, Virginia. And she was speaking at a public hearing she had all her facts and figures down, and the story she told was to tell uh, had frightening aspects to it about the, the possibilities of accidents and so forth.
the people there, in some ways, did not want to hear what she had to say. At a certain point in this town meeting that was taking place in this uh, in the uh, in North Anna, she stopped. She decided to not continue with her facts and figures, and she just stopped and said, "What's on your mind?" What do you have to say? She gave up her agenda. And out of that came a very powerful uh, process of listening to each other, of hearing the hopes and fears. And of course, many of these people were, there was a nuclear plant there and many people were working there, so it was not at all one-sided. And out of that came came something new, came a very respectful, dialogue and some very clear action out of a kind of not knowing, out of a giving up of of knowing in that moment. A third story. Uh, Another friend, some of you know Roger Walsh, who practices, uh, often does the long retreat here and and sometimes teaches Zogchen and is a writer in uh, transpersonal psychology. Roger told the story of having an interview after he had done a book, which was also about the, it was about the application of transpersonal psychology to some of the world's issues. And Roger was describing, I think it was a radio interview. And at one point, the interviewer asked him a question. And here is this person, Roger has an, a PhD, an MD, has written a lot of books, tons of articles, and this interviewer asked him the question, it was some momentous question about what should be done. And Roger said, I don't know. This is not the answer expected of experts. And the interviewer was put off. And the interviewer said, what do you mean you don't know? Aren't you supposed to know? And Roger said, no, I don't know. I, sometimes I have to just listen and I have to let go of all that I know. Maybe a last last story. A friend of mine just came back from being in Germany for some time. For the last month, he uh, he lives in this area, and his wife has uh, breast cancer. And he went to Germany for a special treatment that's not available here. And in that process, he was there for a month, of course, not knowing what would happen, just continually doing what needed to be done, very loyal, dedicated, energetic, you know, all, you, you know the story, all sorts of, you know, uh, all sorts of minor crises and need to uh, stay up all night and so forth. During this month, his father died. And actually, it was interesting because he's from Germany and his father died during the time he was in Germany. And so in the midst of all this, he went to the funeral. And he came back about a week ago, about 10 days ago. And there is a tremendous quality of equanimity. 
lot of exhaustion, but a lot of equanimity. And I really, you know, in, in thinking of this uh, theme, I really thought that's really an example of not knowing but keep going. There's a profound not knowing as to what the results will be. And add to that his father dying in this time. Not totally unexpected, but not expected. And I think it, it points to, I think this last story particularly, points to the way that in some way we're all in this state of not knowing and keeping going. If you think about it, we're all in a way heroic. You know, we're all, who of us knows much about what we're doing? <laughs> I mean, there's someone in the back, raise, raise hands. <laughs> Just to, uh, but you know, there there are profound ways that we we don't know. We don't know where our life is going. We don't know what comes next. We don't know what's happening personally. We don't know what's happening culturally. It's a very dangerous time for our culture right now. You know, and yet we somehow still keep going. We still keep acting. We still uh, do our best, even though. In, in very deep ways, we don't know what's going on. We don't know what what life is about. This is what Thomas Merton said, using uh, using Christian language. My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that there's a desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope that I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, even though I may know nothing about it. Therefore will I trust you, although, always, although I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. And that, that comes in many ways from the depth of contemplative practice. And it's a theme which I think is very central, really, to all traditions. You know, we, we find something like a quality of unknowing at the heart of spiritual practice. You know, whether it's in the tradition in Christian contemplation, like Merton alludes to, or in, in, in that tradition, we have many ways of talking about that. Some of you know, particularly in uh, medieval Christian mysticism, there were, you know, there, there were, this was a core theme, there was a whole book written called The Cloud of Unknowing in the 14th century. The great uh, German mystic Meister Eckhart talked about needing to forget in order to come to God. And in fact, some of you know, and this got him in trouble with the authorities at the time, he even said, to really go deeply into life, you have to even forget God. You have to forget your ideas of the sacred. Now we have the Jewish tradition where they refuse to spell out the name of God, the name of Yahweh. You know how they put the letters with, with blanks? You've seen that maybe? I think this is referring to the same quality of unknowing. Or in the Hindu tradition, how it's said sometimes, uh, 
that the true way of speaking about things is to say neti neti, not this, not that, not this, not that, but there's something about the deepest knowledge that is about an unknowing of what's of the usual. Or in the Taoist tradition, where in the Tao Te Ching it said, the Tao which can be spoken about is not the true Tao. Some of you may, may remember these. And so what's that, what does this mean for our practice, this, this quality of not knowing? It's very core to our practice. And I want to just say here that very much like your question about vigilance and alertness, it's a question of a balance. In some way, there's a balance between not knowing and knowing. And I'm primarily going to talk about the not knowing quality. But at certain points in our practice, in our life, uh, knowing is very important. Some kind of knowing or finding meaning. Sometimes uh, people's survival depends on finding meaning. I was reading the story about a woman who, as a young girl, uh, was abused. But in many ways, she saw herself in this very difficult situation as protecting her mother and the rest of her family. And it was, she said it was that quality of meaning which let her survive. It gave her some sense to go on. So there is a very important way that certain kinds of knowing and meaning are important. We can think that in, in taking care of our health, sometimes knowledge is, is crucial. You know, and the kind of not knowing I'm talking about is not the is not the not knowing that our government would sometimes want us to have. <laughs> so, or that because not knowing could be used as a tool of oppression or a tool used by those in power to uh, and is used uh, in order to uh, make it hard for us to actually act wisely and compassionately. So that's a kind of proviso. But that being said, there's a way in which uh, not knowing is at the heart of our practice, and it's really in many ways at the heart of our lives, that in our practice, we periodically go into the unknown. We do this in our daily practice. And one way of thinking about our sitting is to see it as a time in which we can let go of our expectations. We can let go of our assumptions. We can let go of thinking, I know what's going to happen in my next sitting, and this is it, because that was really nice the other day. (laughs) And to let go of that is to let go of knowing. And so in that daily practice, there's a kind of invitation to cultivate not knowing. It's to just be present. It's just to see what's there. It's to ask what's happening. And in that, we cultivate, in a very simple and direct way, this quality which may be the deepest quality of our, of our, um, of our presence, of our being, this ability to be with the unknown. In our practice, that quality of not knowing is often Uh, identified as a kind of bare attention. That we just try to be, we just try to attend to the bare 
data, as it were, of our experience. And we see the ways that we're reactive, we see the ways that we want certain things to happen or think certain things should happen or try to produce certain results in our meditation. And I think we really can't be told enough, can't be counseled enough to be careful about our tendency to try to control our meditation experience and to let go. It's really, uh, again, partly an answer to your question about vigilance and alertness, that we, we can really ask ourselves, am I really opening to the unknown in my sitting? Or am I trying to make things happen? And I think we all probably have to confess that we may have secret and not so secret agendas to use our meditation for certain results. I know this is true of me often, and it was, and uh, I think it's inevitable, but it's something we can keep looking at. I know one of the uh, interesting and somewhat sobering results of my first years of practice was just to see how much I was trying to control my meditation experience, how much I was trying to structure, you know, how much I was to trying to structure what I was told was to be a quality of being open and not knowing. Because in many ways, when we practice, it's like a big Rorschach test for whatever ways our minds work, right? And so it's not a, you know, it's something just to note and to let go of moment by moment. Oh, I'm trying to make this happen in my experience. Just let it go. Let it go. Come back somehow to this, this bare attention. In, in Zen tradition, as you know, they have wonderful phrases for reminding us of this quality of not knowing. And some of you know the Korean Zen teacher, Sun Sanim, who his major instruction is, uh, if I can do this respectfully with a Korean accent, uh, only keep don't know mind. <laughs> only keep don't know mind. That is the secret of your practice. Only keep that don't know mind. You're trying to know uh, be careful. And, and in Zen, they, they use koans, which, which are ways of uh, somewhat cleverly deconstructing the mind that knows. No. No. So they, they, would, they would say, they would ask questions like, um, um, my mind and this wall, are they the same or different? If you say they're the same, I hit you 30 times. If they say they're different, I hit you 30 times. <laughs> then you're reminded, only keep don't know mind, right? So it's, that kind of practice is, a, is a, a way of inviting us to go beyond our usual way of conceptualizing, our usual way to construct experience through sets of uh, concepts, up and down, in and out, same and different, and so forth, that tend to see things in a dualistic way. Suzuki Roshi uses the, frame, uh, the phrase, uh, beginner's mind, to say the same thing. Only keep beginner's mind. And so we do this practice on a, on a daily basis. We go into the unknown. The invitation is to bring that quality of going into the unknown, of opening to not knowing more and more in our life, because it's really a quality of being present, I would say, 
with our fullness, but in a way in which we're using the mind in a deeper way, that it's the, the, the quality of knowing that we're being invited to uh, let go of or deconstruct is a, we might say, a more super, superficial quality of knowing. It's a way of trying to control or trying to conceptualize or trying to fit experience into certain views. And you know that in Buddhist practice there's a very strong invitation to be careful about our attachment to views and concepts. And it's very much uh, an invitation to see the way when we're in discussions, when we're looking at our experience, how much do we get attached to our views and concepts? How much do we get attached to our right views, our good concepts? And for me, one of the glories of Buddhism is that it's one of the few traditions which has as part of its practice the critique of attachment to Buddhist views. Would that that was widespread in all traditions. Would that it was widespread in Buddhist tradition. <laughs> but it's, it's a very, it's, it's incredibly valuable self-corrective. Because of course we can get attached to our Buddhist views. We can get attached to our views about spirituality. You know, and we can get attached to our views about uh, love, about wisdom, or about emptiness. And Nargajana said the worst thing possible is to get attached to our views of emptiness. It's like picking up a poisonous snake by the tail. You know, so we have to be careful about that. We have to watch out for, for our attachment to views. And we, we find ways to go into the unknown. We find ways to do that on a daily basis, and we find ways to do that periodically. One of the ways I love to approach retreats is to see that retreats are a kind of invitation to go into the unknown. They're an invitation to go into the mysterious. They're an invitation to check out our lives free of our usual way of seeing things. And and this quality of going into retreat or having a significant period to go beyond the known, to gain what uh, Krishnamurti calls freedom from the known, is something we find in all cultures. We find it in the going into the wilderness. We find it in the uh, going on a journey or trips or traveling. That can often have the quality of going into the unknown. And we find it in retreats. And I would, I would invite us all to ask, do I have a place in my life where in some ways I can go into the mystery or the unknown for a protracted period? And can I approach that period with a kind of asking, what is there, what can I learn, what can I be told? Sometimes we need to do that actually in our lives for periods of time. And I know, I know uh, for myself that sometimes happened about four years ago I knew that I had to uh, stop my usual daily life practice. And I, I guess I had the luxury of taking uh, leave from my uh, teaching position that I had with, uh, with, a, with a graduate school. And I just stopped everything. I, I was on retreat a lot for about 13 months. I was on retreat for probably three or four months. Uh, and I just stopped everything. I got off all the activities I was part of. I stopped. I was uh, editing a journal. I stopped doing that. I was on a board. I was on the board of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. I got off that. I just stopped everything, and it was, of course, sometimes scary. Right? It was dropping of structure. 
but there was something that told me if I want to go to what's deeper, I need to stop being so busy. And of course, we don't all have the luxury. That is a luxury. We don't all have the luxury to do that in such a large way, but perhaps we can do it in smaller ways. And it was, it was necessary, as it were, to clear out the space before something new could happen. And I knew in my, in my own heart, I knew that I wanted something deeper to come into my life and I needed to clear out space for doing that. And sometimes that happens for us when we have an illness or an accident. We don't, it sometimes happens without choice, but sometimes we can choose to do that. I think that's very, very important. So in this, uh, in this cultivation of not knowing, I want to mention a few ways we can look at that practice, and then, then I want to talk about the keep going part. Uh, I want to mention uh, three or four basic practices. I've, I've talked about how our mindfulness practice can be understood as a practice of not knowing. And I think that's really fundamental. Another quality, or another way to see our practice as a practice of not knowing, is to see our practice as a practice of listening. And we can do that practice in daily life. We can do that practice uh, when we're in conversation, when we're uh, talking with people. Do I really listen? And you know that there are these beautiful images of listening as something very sacred. You know, some of you know the images of Milarepa, the great Tibetan poet and meditator who lived in the caves for much of his life. And he's often portrayed in the Tibetan tankas as having his hand cupped to his ear. And, you know, I have this bandage on my ear. And I, I um, you know, of course, everyone asks what it's, about, what it's about. I've been trying to develop creative answers in the last <laughs> period of time. It's actually from some minor surgery I had. But I was thinking that there's also the figure of Quan Yin, who supposedly listens to the cry of the world. And one of the you know, somewhat humorous answers I give to what's, why is there a bandage, I say, I've been listening to the cries of the world, and it's pretty rough out there <laughs> the last few last few months. So there's this there's this quality of listening which is just so central. Uh, a few years ago, I was chair of our whole school's faculty for two years, and I saw about 80% of my job of being chair as listening. Often, I didn't have anything to say. I was someone, and mostly was listening to people complaining. And I would sit, I, and I, I was very struck by this, that a lot of my work was just to be able to listen, not and, and to be careful about my own views. That's why this mindfulness practice is so important in our, in our listening and our daily life, because we have to have the mindfulness to be able to monitor ourselves internally as we're in conversation and as we're in action. And that's a pretty advanced quality, but it's something we can cultivate. How do I keep tracking my own internal process when I'm in the midst of action and interaction. And that's really key to being able to develop this quality of listening or the quality of not knowing. And so I would be uh, listening to people's complaints. I had to be careful when I had my view because sometimes I I would watch myself internally and I would say, well, yes, you're really right about that person, (laughs) you know, or, or whatever. And I would listen and I would... Um, actually usually just stay silent. And I found that most of what I had to say was, I hear what you're saying. There's a lot of 
difficulty there, isn't there? There's a lot of pain. My suggestion is that you find the right time and place and talk directly to the person with whom you have a problem. For this, I was paid (laughs) a certain extra amount of money. But it's really, it's what I found was my, my work. That listening is so undervalued in this world. And it's a key, it's a key, it's a key to resolving conflicts. About a week ago, I spent a whole day with the great Norwegian um, scholar and practitioner of peace studies named Johan Galton. I don't know if any of you know his name. He was was really the founder of peace studies. And he's, for the last 40 years, he's in his early 70s now, and as a child, he was under the Nazi occupation. And he told stories of, as a teenager, taking very daring actions to go through the town at night and put little placards on the walls urging different forms of resistance. And for the last 40 years, he's been a person who both has done scholarly work on peace and conflict. He's also gone to areas of great conflict and helped to resolve the conflicts. He's had some amazing success stories. One story he told was of being asked to come to Ecuador and Peru about five years ago. They had a piece of land between them that was of no significance militarily or economically. There were no resources. It was mostly mountainous. No people lived there. Since 1941, they had fought four wars there, nonetheless. And his work is to use the imagination, creativity, and the state of not knowing to imagine solutions to protracted conflicts. It's a beautiful kind of work. He said, I imagine that this land could be administered by both countries and could be a natural park. They accepted his idea. He billed them for $43 for his work. One hotel room, $15. The bus from Bogota, Colombia, $28. And that solution has kept. And so there's something in conflict work, whether it's with ourselves, with friends, or at these large, uh, these large settings, that's about, about listening and being able to listen carefully. It's about not knowing. He says, in doing conflict work, you have to be, have a qual- ability to listen, to be open, to be creative, to use the imagination. The worst people for conflicts are people who think they know something. Unfortunately, that means most of the diplomats and most of the people involved and most anyone with an advanced degree. So he says what's needed for conflict are people who can actually just go into the situations and listen and be creative and imagine. And he says if that's there, many solutions that seem intractable can be resolved. Of course, it takes other things as well, but the imagination and the openness and the not knowing, he say, is, he says, is key to being with conflicts. A second quality, other than listening, is a quality of doubting or questioning. It's about being able to be with questions without looking for premature resolution. And some of you may remember that the, there's this wonderful 
account, uh, her wonderful letter that uh, the poet Rilke wrote in, in, in the book that's collected under the title Letters to a Young Poet. And he has this wonderful advice to the young poet. The young poet is basically asking him, tell me the meaning of life, tell me how to write poetry, etc. And this is Rilke's answer to him. Be patient towards all that is unsolved in your heart and try to leave the questions, them, try to love the questions themselves like locked rooms and like books that are written in a very foreign tongue. Do not seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. In other words, they would be overly maybe conceptual. They wouldn't be in the heart and, and deep in the being. Do not seek now the answers which cannot be given you because you would not, you would not be able to live them. The point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live among some distant day into the answer. So can we take some of the unresolved parts of our lives as questions? We all have those, right? We have them for ourselves, we have them for our families, we have them for our culture. Can we do that? Can we take them as questions? Can we say, this is a difficult area of my life. I don't know what's happening. Can I take it as, I will keep asking this question with a spirit of openness, with a spirit of mystery? And then I think the last way that I want to mention as a practice to be uh, with a kind of not knowing is to ask a really fundamental question, and it's to use the power of inquiry. Again, this is used in Zen a lot. Uh, Stephen Batchelor, in his wonderful book called The Faith to Doubt, which is also about not knowing, he tells the story of doing Korean Zen practice where the only thing they were to do for three months was to ask the question, what is this? What is this? 18 hours a day. And it may sound humorous, but if you, some of you who have done this, know that it actually opens up the quality of not knowing, which is profound. And, and maybe ultimately the, the way to get around the paradox is that not knowing is a profound state of knowing, but it's a different kind of knowing. So what about keep going? I've talked about not knowing. What about keep going? I was thinking that to, to use the phrase keep going is a way to balance this, uh, this practice of not knowing. That I think that we can practice not knowing and we can get into certain traps. And I think the phrase not uh, keep going really for me is a way of uh, communicating about what we have to look out for a little bit when we practice not knowing. And I'll just mention these, these uh, briefly. Because I think that there's, in the depths of not knowing, there's the energy for keep going. And again, it may be that, that, again, that the not knowing is actually a profound state of knowing. But it's this profound intuitive sense of knowing where we're not grasping with our views, our concepts, our need to structure things. But it's more of an intuitive, open quality of knowing, which could be called a not knowing. That's why, that's why so many people like to use the language of not knowing or unknowing uh, when they speak. So I want to talk about uh, four qualities. The first is the quality of commitment. That 
some, if, if our not knowing is going into a dangerous territory, one sign of it might be that we don't have a sense of commitment. You know, how, we might ask, how committed are you to not knowing? <laughs> uh, it's an interesting question, right? How committed are you to not knowing? How much can you have a quality of not knowing and keep acting, keep moving, keep committed? And what is that commitment about? What is, it's really about there being some energy to go deeper, to, uh, to see life, to be present, that, is, that helps us to keep going. Because if we take the quality of not knowing at a more super intellectual level, not knowing could be paralyzing when you think about it. Not, oh, I don't know anything. I can't do anything. And I think we all know times in our own lives or in the lives of others when people may use this quality of not knowing as an excuse not to get their lives together. I don't know what to do. Therefore, and then this, really it's also an answer. You, your question is coming up over and over again. This balance between vigilance and relaxation is also about not knowing and keep going. Because we can use the not knowing as a way to really not know what we need to know, not do what we need to do, to not act, to be overly, oh, it's okay, it doesn't matter what happens, I don't know what's going to happen, there's a lot of suffering, but I'll just stand back, I won't do anything, I don't know. I think we know that flavor. That's, I would say, using the language of the, uh, the near enemies, would be a near enemy of not knowing. Because I think the, the true not knowing, as it were, has qualities of commitment, it has qualities of action, of acting for what's important. I think it also has qualities of, of ethics. That again, we could sometimes find people who use the sense of not knowing as an excuse for thinking that anything goes. And I don't think that's the spirit. There's something very powerful about Buddhist practice which combines a not knowing arresting in the heart and the deep mind and saying that that's, it's there that you find your ethical guidance. It's not in so much in the conceptual knowledge of what's right or wrong. Or maybe we could say that that's a less mature way of, of being ethical. That the deepest quality of ethics, I think, is almost in that not knowing that it becomes intuitive that we act in a way that's helpful, that's warm, that's caring, that's non-harming. And lastly, I would say that the, the quality of keep going is also a quality of faith. That, that the not knowing, I think it's obvious in the title of Stephen Batchelor's book, The Faith to Doubt, that the depths of not knowing involve a kind of faith that keeps us going. That there's, uh, there's a way in which we rest in not knowing, and in so doing so, we rest in a faith both in ourselves and in our lives. And I think all of us probably have touched that at different times. The quality of not knowing is something that can deepen our faith. To practice not knowing, just in mindfulness practice, or in, the, in, a, in retreat practice, or in opening up to a cycle of our lives in which we don't know what's going to happen, is a way to deepen faith. It's a way to cultivate faith. And I, I think I want to end with a, with a short poem by Rilke, which expresses that quality of faith 
in the not knowing. He, he calls it he calls it the dark. He talks about the not knowing as a kind as as, as being in the darkness. He says, I love the dark hours of my being. My mind deepens into them. There I can find, as in old letters, the days of my life already lived, held like a legend, understood. Then the knowing comes. I can open to another life that's wide and timeless. It's the quality of the not knowing and the knowing ultimately being together. Then the knowing comes, I can open to another life that's wide and timeless. So I am sometimes like a tree rustling over a gravesite and making real the dream of the one its living roots embrace. A dream once lost among sorrows and songs. So I realize somewhat the irony of talking at length about not knowing. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.